Today's episode is brought to you in part by Linux Academy. Linux Academy invites you to celebrate Christmas in July with them as they launch over 150 new hands-on training products covering the absolute latest in information technology. It's the biggest content launch in their history, and it's happening throughout July 2018. Find out more at linuxacademy.com slash live. Quote, cloud native applications are designed to be managed by software in all stages. This includes ongoing health checks as well as initial deployments. Human bottlenecks should be eliminated as much as possible in the technology, processes, and policies. End quote. That quote is from the O'Reilly book Cloud Native Infrastructure, and on today's Data Knots episode, we talk to Justin Garrison, one of the authors. We're going to dive deep into one of the book's chapters going under the covers about managing cloud native applications. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, whose smile is so bright that everyone else in the room has to put on sunglasses when he walks in. And our guest today is Justin Garrison. Justin, in a line or two, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? Uh, hey, I'm Justin. Yeah, I co-authored the book and I've been uh, involved in a lot of open source communities and different projects out there on the Internet and just excited to talk to you guys about it. Awesome. So uh, the book again, Cloud Native Infrastructure, it's one of the O'Reilly books, you know, that familiar blue and white cover with a critter on it. What's the critter on this one? Like some kind of a vulture or something. It's an Andean condor. Andean condor. Ooh. There we go. Right. You just got taught, buddy. I did. You just got <laughs> <I> educated. <did. laughs> Well, Justin, we're uh, we're going to dive into the managing cloud native applications, doing that with cloud native infrastructure. And I want to dive into that quote as a, as an opening thing here. You say that cloud native apps have to be managed by software and not by humans to be considered cloud native. Why is that so? I think that people get hung up a lot on what defines a cloud native application, and a lot of times they the factors that everyone goes back to is like, Oh, well it's, you know, it's stateless and it's all these things. And it's like, really like a lot of that stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're using a container. It doesn't matter. Like if you're using go or if you're using Ruby or, or if you're just using bash or whatever, like a lot of that doesn't matter. It's if you can hand off the management of that application, the full life cycle of the application to other software. And, and that's really like, if it runs in a cloud environment, it's being run on top of other software. And that was kind of, the goal there is just like getting people to, to get off all these hangups of it has to be written in Go or it has to be in a container. It's like, really, it doesn't matter. Write it so that it can be managed by software and then it'll be much more successful in a cloud environment. Okay, got it. So that, that was the point of that, just the emphasis on, uh, on software managing it, which, well, really, that's everything we're going to dive into today. Because as I was getting into this chapter and reading it and outlining it to kind of understand the points that you were making... I noticed everything about this is all about humans not touching anything and being out of the process because other than that, it just doesn't work. Yeah, humans, we love to be involved and we love to have control and we love to understand things, but these applications are getting so complex and so large and and we can't keep all that in our heads anymore. And a single person that manages a, a large application, they can't hold it all on their head and know everything that's going on. And so you have to be able to release some of that control and trust the software. I mean, you write software that does that kind of stuff for you. And granted, like, I want to take a bathroom break once in a while, so I'm not going to be watching over these applications 24-7. 
Justin, one thing that you've asserted in your book was that applications must be cloud native before they can be managed at scale. And I'm certain that there's going to be folks there that would like to challenge that. But what do you mean by that statement? Again, going back to, you know, a cloud native application can be managed by software. Really, it's, it's about not treating a cloud environment as, as a data center or as a single box um, where plenty of people will, will run infrastructure in Amazon or, or Google or Microsoft and say like, oh, well, I run in the cloud, so I'm cloud native, right? And it's like, well, how are you managing that stuff? What are you doing with it? And if they're SSHing into boxes and manually, you know, get pull and then restart a, a service or something like that, like, no, that's not cloud native. Like that's renting someone else's power. And, and that's not the goal here. The, the goal is to, to make these things easier and to make these things scale better and to make it so that you can gain a bunch of agility and, and velocity in how you deploy and manage these applications and how you can change these applications. And putting a human in the middle of all that just makes everything go slower because people are only working 40 hours a week. And even then, they're working, you know, they're on social media or they're in, taking lunch breaks or they're talking to people. So it's, you know, the computers are, are, are what manage this the entire time and, and being able to build these services that can manage the applications and the infrastructure is what really will help you be cloud native. Mm, so we're talking like pretty significant scale here, not like, oh, I've got my three-tier app and it has, you know, five web servers or something. We're talking like, hey, this is, this is pretty bonkers, potentially. I guess you could start small, but potentially bonkers. Yeah, and, and I tried to point that out even in the book where it's like, you know, there's reasons not to have cloud-native infrastructure. There's reasons not to run in the cloud. There's reasons not to use Kubernetes. Like, there, all these things add complexity. And, and as, as your scope of what you operate grows, like, you get more comfortable with the complexity you build. But if you don't need that complexity, like, just start at nothing. And literally, like, if, if you just have a WordPress site, like, you can just go stand up the WordPress site. And if you don't need, you know, like, understand that maybe that's going to go down at some point. But you don't have to build all this infrastructure and all this complexity to run something simpler. Like, this should be something that's more complex or larger scale. Okay. So we're talking about complexity, then fit microservices into this. That seems to be part and parcel of the cloud native world. You typically end up building your app in a microservices kind of a framework. And we've talked about that on data knots a lot. It sounds great. You get component parts of your app. You reduce your fa failure domain if one thing breaks. But on the other side, now there's a lot more moving pieces and parts. So what sort of challenges pop up when you are managing microservices? Yeah, I mean, microservices will add a lot of complexity just because people will try to understand all of the microservices the same way they understand a monolithic application, where the monolithic application will run one instance and you can kind of look through the code and, and read it microservices, you know, that's spread all over the place. It's all different endpoints. And, and how does one person wrap that in their head? And it goes back to just kind of like, what is, what is complexity in this case? Like, is complexity a thousand microservices that you only have to know about five at any given point? Or is it 10 services, but you have to understand what all 10 are doing? And it's like, well, the thousand that you only need to know about five at any given point is, is less complex than needing to know about 10 or 20 at one time and understand how they all interact together. The more you can break down the barriers and understand just smaller pieces, the easier it is for a human to understand what's going on. Yeah, it's like that scene in The Matrix where the guy wants to be reinserted, and he's like, ignorance is bliss, and he's eating the fake <laughs> steak. It's like, yeah. Um, but to kind of get a little nerdy on terminology, I want to make sure that I've got this right. You know, when we talk about a cloud-native application, is the application the individual microservice? Is that the app, or is it all the microservices that make up the app? Could it be both? To me, that a lot of times breaks down to how your organization or, or how the actual like fundamentals of what people 
organize the application like like mm. where's the team barrier it doesn't matter you know like like the technology might i might depend on some other team but my group of people that manage this application that is the barrier for my application that's what i consider application it's independently deployable and managed by a single group of people and and so in that way it's more of like what does conway's law say conway's law is you know you will ship basically your org structure and if your team is five people and they manage one microservice that depends on another microservice that's also managed by your team, then sure, you consider that your application. But if it is a different team, then that's probably a separate application because those are both independently deployable by each team. Well, what about functions or functions as a service then, uh, serverless stuff? I, a little bit different from microservices. So how do they fit into a cloud-native application management scheme? They can be microservice endpoints, whatever, again, your team barrier is for what that service does. Some of the maturity around functions isn't there yet to be able to tie them together as easily as you can. I mean, you can make an HTTP call that, that gets you a response. But some of the other, like, daemon-based stuff and other things that are part of your infrastructure, like, that's not there. And the maturity is just not there in functions just yet. But it's, it's definitely getting there, and, and that's going to become more and more of a thing of, hey, how do we glue all these independent functions together? It becomes, again, complex to manage, and, and you have to make sure that the team can independently deploy those things. But it's more about what is a good scope for what the endpoint you're, you're providing or what service you're providing to other areas in the, in the infrastructure and other applications that depend on you. Justin, can you explain, uh, I think it was mentioned as sidecar proxies, such as Envoy, uh, where we're adding functionality to a cloud-native application and kind of rewriting it itself, you know, kind of rewriting from scratch? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, again, like a monolithic app, if you want to see what that app's doing right now, you go, you know, you SSH to the box and you S-trace the process, and you can kind of see what it's doing, and you can see it's stuck on some thread, it's trying to open a file or it's waiting for something to return. And, and that's how you would debug these monolithic services. And, and when you break those apart into smaller independent pieces, you can't go, you know, so I'm, I'm sure some people do. You shouldn't go to, <laughs> to 20 different boxes and S trace all the processes and then try to glue that back together in your head. And, and that's just like, it's not, it, you don't scale and, and your knowledge of the system doesn't scale to be able to debug these things. And, mm. and sidecars, is, well, at least in Envoy's case, like it adds a lot of resiliency to your application where an H, instead of doing an inter-process or inter-memory call to another process, it's going over the wire over HTTP. And so you can add some resiliency to like say, where am I actually going and, and what endpoint is down and how long should this take? And then also admit things like tracing metrics and, and, and tracing signals to say like, oh, when I call my main application, this is the path that it took through all of my microservices to return an actual error or, or a success. And again, monolithic app, you can just go to the one box, S-trace it and figure it out. But in a distributed infrastructure with distributed services, you really need to be able to like trace that across the entire path and see what all the requests are doing. And, and Envoy yeah. is, is a way that adds resiliency, but also adding these open tracing metrics give you output so that you can understand the system better without actually needing to rewrite every function. It just, yeah, there's a, there's a long topic about, you know, adding libraries <laughs> or sidecars or whatever. And inside cars are, are in this case are often a good model to get some of that resiliency and information back out of that. Yeah. Cause I, I bet you troubleshooting is always the thing that stuck me in the side and, and being able to look at something monolithic is relatively simple. And now I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, trying to, 
trying to shovel to this reminds me of back when like overlay networks became super popular for virtualization. And it's like, all right, there's an abstraction of an abstraction and you got to dig deep. And this just seems like a super headache. So I can see the value there. Well, yeah, but don't add complexity when you don't need to. Again, it's like if, if your system isn't complex enough to need this kind of thing, don't say I need to run a sidecar of Envoy because that's what the <laughs> cool kids are doing. Like that's Envoy isn't it's not cloud native. Like it's, it's not like that doesn't make you cloud native. Like cloud native is a whole process and how it's how you do these things, not writing and going using Envoy. Like that's not the thing. Those are tools that implement, you know, certain functionality that you want out of the application. But I want to be cool. It's so important to me to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point because that, that's one of the things I, I, I fear in some of these shows. We talk about a lot of the bleeding edge stuff and, and does everybody think they need to go and do this? And it's like, no, it's more an exposure of how people who have complex, very large scale problems to solve, solve those problems. The idea being hopefully take away some principles that you might be able to apply to your world because we're not on Netflix and Facebook and so on. Right. Justin, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You're right near the top of the show, you had said everybody gets hung up on the factors and you got to do this and you got to do that in order to be cloud native. And if I'm running these things, I am. And packaging is one of those. Oh, if I'm doing containers, uh, I've packaged my apps this way in a container format, I'm cloud native. But you in the book make the case that eh, how you're packaging your app isn't a big deal one way or the other. Right. It's how you manage the application is more important than how you package it. A lot of stuff was pioneered or at least exposed by what Netflix was doing long time ago when they were big, you know, they were moving from their data centers. They went into Amazon and they were big proponents for how to use Amazon correctly. And they were baking VM images and they were, they were taking these AMI images and they were, you know, putting them in auto scaling groups and, and their application was, was a VM image. It wasn't a container. It didn't really matter how it was packaged. Yeah, having something that was somewhat immutable helped them grow at that point, but it really didn't matter how it was packaged. If it was an RPM, like they could have done the same thing. It's how they managed all those applications that was important. And even now, like there's a lot of very large scale companies that are going back from doing this pre-bake VM images uh, because they can't get enough you know, like they can't scale fast enough in a cloud environment because when you try to cycle 500 or 1,000 VMs at once, like that takes a while. And it's just easier to install an RPM than it is to go through and redo all of your infrastructure every time you want to deploy something. You know, I, I think we've covered this before, but it's worth saying that if you're treating cloud as just someone else's data center or using someone's data center or what was it, like renting power, I think Justin said, you're going to be disappointed with the cloud. It's just not going to work like you want, and it's going to be more expensive. So there we go. What about you, Ethan? Oh, exactly in that vein. When Justin's talking a lot about managing by software and getting humans out of the loop because you can't operate cloud-native infrastructure at any kind of scale with people making all the decisions, and managing by software, it uproots everything we think we know about managing infrastructure. Just like you were saying, Chris, if you're just doing the lift and shift version of cloud, that's not cloud native. That's not what any of this is about. It goes all the way back to that idea of managing everything via software to uh, to, to get those benefits and right to not be overspending. We 
start pausing the discussion for just a moment. Why would we do that to you? Because Linux Academy is our sponsor today, and throughout July 2018, they are releasing over 150 new hands-on training products, including a lot of content that's been highly requested covering Azure, Linux, security, and updates to Amazon Web Services courses. Specific material in this biggest ever release includes AWS Certified Solutions Architect 2018, SaltStack Certification, Red Hat Certified Architect Full Support, AWS Security Specialty Certification, Lambda Deep Dive, and Architecting Microsoft Azure Solutions. If you've never heard of Linux Academy, they focus on hands-on training for leading-edge topics in IT and cloud, and they keep the material up to date. They, they want to make sure that whether you're a beginner or if you already have a pretty good idea of what you're doing, that you can advance to the next place you'd like to go in your career. There are hands-on labs and interactive diagrams so that you folks who need to engage to learn, you can do exactly that. And let's say you like to collaborate with other people. Well, you can do that in their Slack group. We said that Linux Academy is doing their biggest content launch in their history during July 2018, and they've got a contest you can enter. The grand prize for the contest is yet to be announced, but I have a few guesses as to what it might be. So enter that contest at linuxacademy.com slash live, and maybe you'll be the one to let me know what that grand prize was. And now, back to the show. All right, I think we have a better understanding of kind of some of the concepts around cloud native applications. Let's dig into lifecycle management because I'd really like to understand the process for deploying a new cloud native application into production. You know, because you mentioned, Justin, that software is doing this. It's not, you know, the meat spatulas that are our hands. So how does that all happen? What's the magic? Uh, a lot of this is just built on what DevOps has been doing for almost a decade now where you know it's you have you check in code or, or or a person writes something and then it's a whole process on getting that application that actually gets tested automated you know automated testing and automated integration all these things run in an automated fashion and fail quickly when there's a problem and in a cloud environment it's no different i mean your application should go out the same same way like we're not throwing away all these years and years of learning from what devops and all these other communities have done we're we're building on that a little bit and saying, hey, what if you're, the place you're actually deploying is more dynamic or it changes more frequently? And, and there are some things that are coming out that are, are more emerging in this sense where they're trying to build libraries around that, that deployment pipeline so you can manage all of the infrastructure in a central place, similar to what like a Terraform would do, but kind of baking Terraform into the application code itself. So you're not learning two tools or you're not using deploying your code and also deploying Terraform in separate repos, you kind of can bake all that in and, and have a library into your application that Got can it. do some of this for you. But again, the pipeline should be the same. Don't reinvent what has been learned and all this benefit we've got from deploying with the pipeline automated and, and doing DevOps stuff right. Another idea here with uh, lifecycle management, you, you state that cloud-native app release should be frequent and uneventful. And which that's more or less the complete opposite of how traditional software upgrades go. Uh, and in fact, when I read that and got that idea in my head, I, I threw a little Twitter bomb out there and said, hey, do your testing in production. No, wait, do the opposite of that, knowing that the traditional network engineers would be like, yeah, like, thumbs up. And then the, the cloud people would be like, no, wait, you're supposed to be able to do it in production. That's the way this works. And I did. I got both of those things. People telling me I was right and people telling me I was wrong. But, uh, but Justin, in the cloud-native world, why would you be doing frequent releases and why would it be a, a non-event? Explain what's going on in the background that makes those things possible. 
again, back from, from kind of DevOps motto of, of do the hard thing frequently and it'll, it'll quickly become less hard. And, and you can deploy these things often because that's painful, but you'll get better at it and then it will become less painful. And, and the longer gap you kind of go between these deployments, the harder it is to actually do those deployments. And that goes back to the earlier discussion about microservices. Like another reason to break down a large application into smaller services is because those services should be independently deployable. And if you can deploy a smaller thing more frequently, you can change it much more frequently. You'll be able to add improvements. And and if you need to change something, you can without saying, oh, well, I got to change this entire ecosystem of what this application is. And, And you can make smaller changes frequently and it goes a lot better in the long run. Yeah, it reminds me of a demo I saw Kelsey Hightower do quite a while back with uh, Kubernetes, just showing Kubernetes taking uh, – it was a microservice illustration. I don't remember exactly what the service was, some Nginx or something, but it was an incremental release. He uh, set up Kubernetes to begin releasing it as traffic came against the new instances and things were okay. The old instances slowly faded out and eventually you kind of rolled through all of the instances of that service. And it all happened automatically. He just was tailing a log after he kicked off the process. It all just happened. Right. And some of those, I mean, Kubernetes is a great example of of making this easy. It's just, you know, like that kind of stuff used to be super hard because you would have to be the person that would manually go remove a system out of the load balancer and you would SSH to the box and you would upgrade one and then you would put it back in, you would test it and then you'd go to the next box and you'd take it out of the load balancer and all that stuff. It was all a very manual process. And in Kubernetes, it's just an API call. It says, hey, I want the new version and make sure that 10% are healthy. And, and it just does it. And, and it's not a person doing that work anymore. I got another quote from the book that stuck out to me, Justin. Quote, with cloud-native applications, you should not SSH into a server and dig through logs. It may even be worth considering if you need SSH log files or servers at all. And again, coming from the traditional infrastructure background, I'm sitting there going, uh, what just happened? <laughs> I just turned up a new web server and I spent lots of time doing that. It wasn't a you know cloud-native thing. But yeah, I was in that world of tailing mail logs to troubleshoot a problem and so on. Okay, so... Explain to us then in a cloud native environment why my go to tools for troubleshooting SSH and log files, all those things I'm so used to, why aren't those the right place to go? Again, it, if you don't need the scale, those things will probably work fine. As soon as you're going to go to a larger scale, SSH and log files, they don't follow along. They, they don't add any value to this kind of abstraction of, of what is my application doing and what does the business actually need out of it. And so in a cloud native environment, we're assuming you're at some sort of scale that if I wanted to actually check how my application's doing, it's going to take me a long time because I'm going to have to SSH to a bunch of instances. And while I'm doing that, the infrastructure itself is going to change. There's going to be new application deployments. There's going to be something else that changes out from underneath me that I won't have full context of knowing what's going on in the system. Some of this kind of is along the, there's a new new-ish buzzword called observability, which is kind of exposing what the innards of the application are doing at any given point. And it, it's some people say it's, it's a combination of kind of this logs and metrics and tracing kind of stuff. I agree a lot with uh, Charity Majors um, as great tweet storms about what she thinks kind of observ- observability is. And I kind of like how she puts it where the kind of three things that she focuses on are like, what's the health of the system? What's the health of a single event? And then where's bugs in my code? And if you can get those answers out of the application without going and looking for a log file, like like looking for log files on disk is just 
not a scalable solution. And so answer those questions better. And then how can you do that at scale? And, and you'll do log aggregation and you'll do a lot more metadata around what's going on in the system and not just go look for a single instance and say, hey, what are you doing right now? Yeah, it's, it is so much the a change in how you have to think as an infrastructure engineer when you describe the going to a single box. I'm reminded of you know the old days of a load balancer with three or four pool members, and it was reasonable that if you were trying to troubleshoot something, maybe you could hit one server at a time or uh, and look at the logs and find your problem. And then as soon as you scale much beyond that, it just gets way out of hand. There's no way to do it. And, and right. So this is you have to have a different solution or you're in a position of just it's broken and all we can do is go in one server at a t- or one instance at a time and try to find the problem and you'd never find the problem because as you say again the the infrastructure is going to change uh, it could have scaled up scaled back the instances you're looking at could be gone etc and so you've got to have it in other words it's a problem that demands a different answer it's not just that you can't because it's kind of slow and impractical it's really impossible the old way of SSHing and logs to, uh, to to get to the bottom of things. Right. In any large scale system, you're going to be like, there's no healthy point. Like you're down. Like there, there are pieces that are broken all the time. Like once you get to a certain scale, you're not just, oh, I'm 100% healthy now. It's like, no, no, like things are breaking all the time around you. And you just have to figure out how to work around those those things that are breaking and recover from those things quickly. And it, so it's not about like, oh, let me go find the one thing that's broken. It's like, no, no, like there's constantly things that are breaking. Once you, you know, get a data center with 10,000 nodes are in it, like your failure rate of hard drives is going to be multiple times a day. And so you have to be able to work with that. And then if you're in a cloud environment, you don't manage any of that stuff. So you don't even know what's going on under the, under the covers. You just have to roll with it and figure out how to recover from these things without the application ever going down. I know I could argue just uh, a simple like hundred something node data center that I managed. It felt like something's always down and broken, but that's a that's a totally different discussion. When you when you said that, Justin, like a part of me just kind of went, Ooh, "Oh, I remember those days." <laughs> so, <laughs> but getting back to the the point on troubleshooting, uh, you also mentioned APM and open tracing as some tools that can help troubleshooting in a you know cloud native environment. Where do they fit though in the troubleshooting cycle? If you're answering those questions of, you know, what's the health of the system or what's the health of the application or what's the health of this call and, and where are bugs in my code? Like open tracing can give you like per instance like or per call kind of metrics and you can do some sampling off of that to say, oh, it looks like, you know, 5% of our calls are failing through this, you know, service. And and they'll expose some of the the actual endpoints that might be having trouble. And, and from there, you would have to work backwards to say, okay, well, why is that having trouble? And some systems are better at exposing that stuff than others. But in a cloud native environment, you're using as much cloud resources as, as you can get away with. If, if there's a cloud hosted database and you don't have to run it, by all means, do that if you technically can. But then you need to be able to know when those things are failing and, and be able to expose that in your application in a way that's meaningful to a human to go in and figure out how to recover from that state. Not to beat it to death, Justin, but going back, though, at some point, am I going to get to a point where I need logs? And if so, when are logs going to help me? And what's my source of these logs? I mean, because we said before, the infrastructure, it can be ephemeral. It's going to change. So do I go to a container that happens to be up and grab logs? Or is there some central source that I might use to grab logs? Yeah, I mean, logs in the traditional sense of a bunch of junk in a text file is a terrible idea for trying to see into your system. If you can structure that data and ship it somewhere and then have, again, if, if systems are managing your applications, 
you should be able to have some sort of software that manages these this log ingestion as well. But it's really just a stream of data that should have some structure around it to make sense of, of what is going on. So I'll interrupt you and say you're saying structured data and coming off the system being aggregated at a central point. So that sounds like telemetry to me. Uh, telemetry, uh, depend, like what do you, what's your definition of tele- telemetry? Is that just metrics? Because metrics are just a number with no context. Logs do give you some structure around why something was emitted and, and why an event occurred. So telemetry to, to me, uh, because it's, it's a buzzword that's come up so much lately in the last year, year and a half especially, and it seems to be that what, what is meant by that are metrics that are in some kind of a predictable format that are coming off of a system and being ingested as you're describing where that structure is known and then that data can be parsed and presented in a, in a more of an aggregated way. You can drill into it. And, but, but it could be broader than that where it might be that streaming record format but also could be like old school networking, SNMP, you know, that kind of polling data that you would pull could, might also come under the big umbrella of telemetry. Metrics are good for seeing a high-level view of kind of a pattern and and maybe some outliers, but it's not a good way to dig into the system because once a system emits and says, I have 500 connections, that does you no good unless you can see a trend there. I mean, you can put it over a, a time series, but again, what are those connections actually doing? And that's where structured logs, a structured string of data will, will come out and you can actually do some processing on that. But just sending out a bunch of numbers have no context of what's actually going on. You can see some patterns, you can see some outliers, but you're not going to be able to actually dig in and, and troubleshoot a system without knowing what events are triggering these things and if they're healthy or not, or if they're good or not. Okay, so the context then is provided by who? A human that understands what is good and bad and then builds that intelligence into the software that is ingesting the numbers and presenting it that way? How do we know? Because again, this, uh, I feel bad. I'm almost baiting you with marketing terms, but uh, some of the companies that are doing (laughs) this, they they would say, oh, well, you know, it's artificial intelligence or or it's machine learning. We're training with a data set and and the machine learning algorithm figures out what's normal for this uh, stream of data coming in. Yeah, I mean, humans write the systems, and so there should be some intelligence on the other end to understand what is what's important and, and what kind of when something would happen and, and what under what situations that would happen. You could put some machine learning or something on that because it's really just patterns because your application is going to only have so many states that it can get into. And so you can have something that obviously looks at that data coming out and says, oh, well, it looks like every day I get a thousand of these requests and and 500 of these, and I get 21 of these errors. But again, a human goes back through and sees that and says, okay, well, how do we actually change the code to be better? Or how do we modify the code to make it something that either fits the situation better or, or gives us better business value? Because, I mean, just writing code for code's sake is, you know, that's, a lot of people have that job maybe, but it's not adding any, any value to the users or the business. And that's really a lot of the goals of these applications. A lot of that, I think, might be also background as far as engineering. Because I know that when I was doing networking primarily and kind of storage primarily, it was fairly simple. You just go into the controller pair or the switch or whatever, or toss the trap. It's very, you know, here's a problem, here's a, here's a solution, or here's where the problem came from. And then when I went more into virtualization and cloud, it was, well, we don't know where the app was and we don't know where the user is and everything's ephemeral and everything's moving around. And it really hit home how worthless a lot of these logs would be because they're either not there anymore or it's like this random GUID that's a face roll, you know, 60 characters 
popped up here for a second and then went away. And it's like trying to put this together, be like trying to hold cooked spaghetti with two fingers, just not really working. So just, just thinking that out loud. And then the, the actual question that I have is, um, let's say that you're running these applications. They're doing great or they're constantly failing, but in a healthy way. When do you kill off the app? When is it time to you know call time of death and say this app needs to die? It's at the end of life. Is that for actually retiring an app or like killing an instance? I would say that we're done with this application. It no longer has a use in life. We need to replace it with either something better or we just don't need it anymore. Yeah, I mean, that should be completely up to the business if if it provides business value and hopefully up to the team that actually manages the application because they should be able to see some sort of uh, information or metrics around how many users they have and how are they using that application and if it can be replaced with something else. And are they digging the logs for that? No, that was, that was a trap. Don't answer. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Justin. So if the business and or the people managing the app have determined that that app can go away and software is managing the entire life cycle of a cloud native app, how does software take an app out of the mix? I mean, it's the same way that you would, you know, create an application. You make an API call, hopefully, and and the system will know how to delete that thing. In Kubernetes sense, I mean, you basically tell it, "I want this deployment. You know, I want to delete this deployment, or I want the instances to go to zero, and it will delete every pod that is running uh, with that application, and eventually, you know, clean up itself." I, I actually really like the Netflix model for the janitor monkey they have, which which is more for infrastructure components where it'll find like a VM or a database or something that exists that's not labeled correctly or not tied to an existing application. And it'll go through and mark them for, hey, this is going to be deleted. Everything in the, their system is, is labeled with an owner. So it'll email those owners and say, hey, by the way, this is going to be deleted. The owner can go in and, and delete it right now or they can leave it and say, oh, yeah, that's fine. I don't need to take any action and the right thing will happen. Making it easy for the right thing to happen without a human doing anything is the right way to scale things. Justin made the point that uh, I think he I think he cited Charity Majors here, who's been on the show before, but uh, but he said the health of the system, the health of the call, and bugs in the code. Those are the the three things that you want to focus on in cloud native applications and cloud native infrastructure. And I, as I was thinking about those three things, okay, health of the system, all of it as a whole, its ability to deliver that uh, that user experience, that application functionality, the health of the call, we're making calls to different components of the infrastructure and uh, different applications and microservices, etc. Are you getting a response back from that call wherever it went out to? And then bugs in the code. What do you have to do to fix this? And then that code gets redeployed across the infrastructure. Again, all of that is system-level thinking, not host, not instance, not a single server, which for traditional engineers, I think is just a different, it's a mind shift. It's a different way to think uh, about how the infrastructure is delivering an application. What got your attention, Chris? You know, I'm doing this project called Refactoring Guru right now. It's kind of teaching me how to refactor my PowerShell code. And a lot of this hits home because a lot of my original scripting code modules, whatever, it was very monolithic. It was very, here's a giant wall of text. And the course has been teaching me to take every function and boil it down until it's one task, one logic gate, you know, one if statement, that kind of thing. And that really turns troubleshooting on its head because then troubleshooting or unit testing, it's really just making sure that one function works, you know, takes the inputs, gives you the right outputs versus testing the giant blob of code, which smacks kind of of the, the reality that cloud native applications have to be architected in the public cloud. All 
All right, Justin, so we got a pretty good idea of uh, cloud-native applications and what that architecture looks like. We talked a bit about lifecycle management. Let's get into how cloud-native apps and cloud-native infrastructure interact with one another. So so start out this way. Explain the, the, the symbiosis, if you will, between CNAs and CNIs. So I don't know if those are really – I just made them abbreviations. Let's, they are. They're, they're real now. <laughs> CNAs and CNIs, that's real. For example – in the book, you talk about CNAs, they need abstractions and isolation and guarantees. And CNI, the CNIs need hooks and APIs from the CNAs so that they can talk to one another. So can you dig into that a little bit more and explain those things? Yeah, I mean, if your application is, is designed to be run by software, the infrastructure is that software that, that manages the lifecycle of your application. And so the application needs to present some sort of lifecycle hooks or APIs to be able to be managed. Uh, right now... If a human's doing it, it's running in a terminal and you control C it to kill it or or you send a you know sig kill term or you know like you send signals to it on the the system itself to say you should stop now. And that should be exposed as some sort of API that the infrastructure can use to then go through this life cycle of starting and making sure it's healthy, making it shut down gracefully so it can kind of drain its connections and enclose database connections, that kind of stuff. Uh, those are all things that the application needs to expose for the infrastructure to be able to manage it. It's also an interesting point here, Justin, that cloud-native infrastructure, you, you said it, I think, directly, it's software. So many of us think of, app, of infrastructure as it's a server that I racked. It's a storage array that lives over here. It's it's something physical. And in fact, we're actually talking about, in this context, software. Right. In the very traditional sense is, you know, you do rack a switch and you rack a server and, and all these things are physically in a rack. Uh, in a cloud environment, everything's software. Like, like there's no physical thing that you're saying, well, I'm touching that one right here. It's like, well, no, it's, it's a lot of it's dynamic and it's all API driven and it's all software based where... Some of them now have you know, bare metal uh, as a service, but it, for the most part, it's, it's VMs and it's software-defined networks and it's software-defined load balancers. And these things aren't physical things you're racking anymore. So you can deploy all of the infrastructure by making API calls. And, and it was actually one of the best things I liked in the, in the book that uh, my co-author, Chris, uh, kind of coined for me where it's like, you know, infrastructure as code is this thing that people have been building to and they really want to get to it. But really what we want is infrastructure as software. Like we don't want code is just a directory full of bits that, that live on disk, whereas software is actually like the living thing that's running that manages the stuff and makes sure that it is what it's supposed to be. The state is correct and it, it will do these lifecycle management and retire new applications. The software running, your infrastructure should be software, not just a directory of code. Hmm. That's well put. And as y'all were talking about those abbreviations, I keep thinking of, or acronyms rather, I keep thinking of CNAs as converged network adapters. Remember those Emulex fiber channel cards that can also do Ethernet now? Okay, maybe it's just me. I got um, a lot of flack for CNI because CNI <laughs> is container network interface for for you know how yeah, networks right. work. Yeah, yeah, the acronym overload for sure. Let's talk about isolation. I was wondering, within the cloud-native sense of the world, what is isolation, if you could explain that? And, and is it something that you could liken to what we've enjoyed with virtualization for quite some time? Yeah, I mean, isolation can be multiple layers here, where it can be at the hardware layer in the chip, you have two VMs, and they shouldn't be able to talk to each other. Most of the time, they can't, uh, despite whatever new vulnerabilities out this month, we'll, we'll see. But as you move up the, up the layers of the stack, where you get closer to the application, the application you know, should have some sort of environment where it's running but when you get to these really large-scale complex applications 
you don't just have a dev in a prod in a stage environment. That's not the thing anymore. There's not these giant isolated things. It's actually more of like a slice of the infrastructure where, where there is a isolation for one of those microservices that you have a, a new version of that microservice and the production workflow can kind of hit that, that test version or that commit version. And, and you can get some other information to see how that's actually working or how that scales or how, if the changes you made are valid and this isolation becomes much more dynamic, just like the infrastructure itself, where you're not doing this, just like you don't stand up a whole application, months and months of planning, the application is there now, never change it. People do the same thing with environments where here's my production environment. This is all the production stuff. And here's the staging environment. And those will never look the same. But if you can actually have microservices that can be injected or put in the path in that environment, you can use things like Envoy to dynamically route some of your traffic through one of these test endpoints or, or mirror some of your traffic. And so a user doesn't get hit with it, but you can see what the errors were. And that sort of isolation should become much more dynamic in these as, as we move forward to make, as complexity grows again, you can't stand up a thousand microservices and say, this is stage environment. It's like, no, you put one of those microservices in that environment and just route some of the traffic to it. Mm, so the isolation is really just who's talking to what less of a like air gapped or, you know, like rigid separation, more just who do you want to talk to? And that becomes the environment you're working within. Right. And these can be completely dynamic based on HTTP headers or some sort of, you know, user ID. And so, oh, if, if you know, user ID 5000 requests this thing, oh, you should go through this microservice so we can see what the errors are, because for some reason that one has a problem. And it, it's a much more dynamic thing. And it's not these set up rigid things. Got it. Justin, a couple more book quotes I want to lift out, uh, and they're related. So here's one, a quote, having humans schedule application placement doesn't scale. And then another quote, request resources, not servers. Okay, we get it. We've been talking about this several times during the show. Humans doing much of anything with cloud-native infrastructure, that's that's no good, doesn't scale. And then uh, we, we mentioned you mentioned this just a little bit ago. If cloud native infrastructure is software, then request resources, not service. That follows. That's that makes sense. But then software scheduling of resources becomes a question. How capable is that technology? I mean, there are some pretty big companies. One I can think of in Boston. Some others out in the valley. That their whole thing is. Basically, this you buy their software to optimize where your workloads are for cost or for performance, whatever, and they're making money solving that problem. So, where are we at with the I don't know the Kubernetes way of doing this or whatever the open source way of doing this is? Is it capable technology? Because not that long ago, it seemed like it was sort of primitive. Yeah, I mean. Vendors are always going to sell you their vendorized products, and they need to make that fully encapsulated to work in any sort of environment. They need to bring everything to the table because every environment is different. And so they will sell you a hardware device or something that's fully encapsulated with just their stuff. I don't see that necessarily going away completely, but this is a lot more for the things that you're developing internally that, that is driving your business, where the things that differentiate you are where you can add business value. And if your application... If, if you're still going out and saying, hey, I need a server, I need a VM somewhere to run my application, that's just a lot of stuff you need to do yourself. Whereas instead you say, I just want this thing to run. I have this application, just figure out where it runs and give me a HTTP endpoint. And, and that's much easier to say, run this somewhere, I don't really care. And I mean, Kubernetes has been in production, in lots of people's production environments for a very long time. And 
and they're hugely large scale, you know, web systems and internet facing websites that are all run in these environments, whether it's, you know, Kubernetes, Mesos, even in the hosted versions of like Amazon and, and ECS and Lambda. And, and these are all that sort of environment where it is very dynamic and they just, you throw code or some sort of binary or something that's packaged and it just runs. And that's really kind of the goal of, of adding velocity to the application development of the things that differentiate you. If again, if, if you need to, I need to write this code and I need to stand up a VM and I need to make sure it's updated and I need to do security up, you know, like all these things are just load on like none of that differentiates you. So focus on the thing that adds value and make that as fast as possible to get to a customer. So it sounds like what you're telling me is the schedulers now are smart enough that you're going to have pretty even load distribution across your physical infrastructure and you're going to, it's going to know Okay, I don't want to stand up this new workload here. I can because this other server's got more resources that's that are available. And those metrics and the way it's gathering data, that's all well, it's you just made the point. I mean, this is happening at scale in production environments, and so it sounds like we're at a place where that is trustworthy and uh and comfortable technology. Sure, and auto scaling has existed for a long time. I guess the question is, do you want even distribution of your applications? Like if that's the goal, then yeah, you know, that's super easy. If your goal is I want to pack as much as possible on this VM and, and take 100% of the CPU, then that's a, you know, a different goal, but there are schedulers for that too. And there are use cases for these types of things in, in ways in Kubernetes, you can do auto-scaling on custom metrics. And so you say, oh, well, I don't want to scale until this backlog of, of jobs to run is over 100 and then scale. I don't care how much resources I have. Just just wait for this backlog to get larger. Those are all different areas that you can emit to do custom scaling. But yeah, I mean, even distribution is probably the most fault tolerant if you lose some stuff, but it may not be the goal for everyone. Yeah, and there's some interesting kind of metrics thrown in the mix because when we were doing on-prem stuff, the scale was like, hey, we've got this stuff we've invested in. We want to get the, the most value out of our investment possible. Versus you, you might be, like you're saying, that backlog might be a better way to do it in a cloud environment because costs are associated with spinning up new instances. You know, it may just be, I don't care if it's 100 people backlog, but if it's 101, then I care to deploy another one because that's going to cost me more. And then you're looking at the trade-off for user experience. So that's And that cost model changes completely in the cloud where, yeah, it's not yeah. a, a upfront, like I planned a year ahead for this thing. You know, it's, right. it's operational cost, not CapEx, it's OpEx. And, and you're spending it as it comes in. And so... Yeah, maybe you only budget a certain amount, so you can't scale more than 50 nodes for the year. But if you can keep it down to 20 as much as possible, then great. You can you know, spend the money somewhere else. Yeah, especially as I, I know typically running a data center that has SDDC or virtualization, whatever flavor you want to call that, you know, we, we tend to get a little panicky when we're starting to hit 70%, 80%. That's like, oh, whoa, we need to buy stuff. That's going to take a while. Here, it's like slam the heck out of it. I don't care if it's 100% all the time. Because I'm just paying for that instance running, you know, and only scale when I when I really need it. So that's just, it's obvious when you say it out loud, but it's also a different wrinkle into the architecture for these things. So where I wanted to go now was talking about service discovery, because I don't know how many other ops folks listening to the show can relate to the whole, we find a hard-coded IP somewhere, and the way we found it was because someone changed an IP, and like the whole system goes down instead of using DNS or something modern. Uh, and in the book, you talk about, that service discovery is kind of being skipped. It's still a problem uh, for a lot of shops. I mean, why? What's the disconnect here? It seems like an obvious thing to pursue. Some of that might be just be because 
service discovery seemed like there's too many options for it. We're like, oh, well, you know, like the, the right way to do it is just DNS, right? Because DNS is, is everywhere and DNS works everywhere, right? It's like, well, if you're working in a shop that like DNS was, wasn't 100% solid, like that's not good either. I've, I've been in those environments where it's like, well, you know what? Like DNS doesn't always give me the right result back. And so what else should I use? And, and maybe I, you know, do hard code a load balancer IP and I have a floating VIP that does this thing. And yeah, service discovery is kind of hard in a lot of these areas. And in traditional infrastructure, you need to have a lot of things right before you make sure that that's just always going to work. And, and that's another thing that some of these systems bring to the table where Envoy is going to give you service discovery closer to the application where it's not a centralized service that if it goes necessarily goes down, DNS is down, nothing can do anything. It's like, well, yeah, but there's a bunch of caches here and, and I can kind of get around some of the stuff by doing another system for my service discovery. And, and where you register those services and how you access them is completely up to a lot of people. And, and sometimes they make it too complex. And, but a lot of times they're just like, well, I don't know what to choose, so I'm not going to choose anything. And that's also a problem. Justin, I got one more question for you, and that's this, this idea of state management, which felt a little different from what I would think of from uh, load, the load balancing world, where more or less you had a health check that said this can or cannot process a request. This seemed more intricate than that. Can you describe what, uh, what state management is and, and the importance of it to cloud-native infrastructure? Yeah, in in regards to infrastructure, we were talking about state management as what is the source of truth for what your infrastructure should look like. Because because the infrastructure changes so much and because things are dynamic, you need to have some source of truth that says, this is what's actually there. And when a new request comes in to say, I need to scale this to 100 or I need a new application, the system can look at that request, look at the current state and look at the source of truth and kind of diff those together to make the right choices for how the infrastructure should look. And state management here is, is really just like an evolution around where state is stored. And if, you're, if you ever use Terraform, Terraform has this state file. And it looks at that state file to say, oh, well, this is the thing that I deployed. So this is the source of truth for what your infrastructure should look like. And, and when you change your Terraform code and then run a Terraform apply again, it'll look at that state file, look at what you have in your code and, and look at reality and you kind of say like, okay, well, how should this actually look and how do I get to that point? And Kubernetes is, is doing that as well with controllers where it, it stores its state in a database in etcd. And that keeps the current state of what the world should look like. You make a request and say, oh, guess what? I want another application or I want more of this application or I want version two. And it will make sure that state converges into the right thing. And so it constantly goes on this this cycle loop of what is the current state? what What is the actual source of truth? And merges those things together until you're at the correct desired state. Or it just errors out and says, okay, I can't do this request anymore because something doesn't exist or it'll just keep trying. Justin, we've talked about a lot of these cloud-native concepts, and it it's like, yes, the context is cloud and running at scale. And at the same time, I just can't help but thinking, man, it feels like a lot of this could be applicable to traditional infrastructure where you could just set up uh, a data center in this way, even if you're not running tons and tons and tons of applications with you know hundreds or thousands or more instances and still benefit from some of these things. You were just closing on that idea of state and knowing what your state should be. That feels great. You would want your data center to be in exactly that world, even if um, you don't have tons and tons of apps out there. So I'm hopeful that a lot of these ideas that are being 
Well, honestly, they're being uh, vetted and fine-tuned and uh, you know made made just perfect in by all the hyperscalers and uh, you know the larger shops. But uh, that's got to trickle down to the rest of the world and become normal over the next, say, I don't know, five to ten years. Where we're all doing it this way eventually, I think. Well, and, and keeping states not a new idea. I mean, it's called a spreadsheet, right? Like your inventory right. spreadsheet <laughs> sure. was your well, your your state and, and, but people, and then, you know, a new request came in, you, you got that new pallet of hardware and someone went in and updated the spreadsheet and typed in all the names and the new host names and Mac addresses and all that stuff in the spreadsheet for what your inventory now looks like, because there's a new state. And then you go and rack and stack those things. And now we're just doing that to software. We're just saying, Hey, guess what? Like we don't have a spreadsheet anymore. We have a database and, and we have a software system that applies the information to that database of what actually is running here. And if you can run your, your infrastructure, if you can scale your infrastructure and have it run as software, instead of as a, you know, in this case, like our spreadsheet is a directory of code where it's, it's not running. It's not a live thing unless a person goes in and updates it. You can run this stuff as software and the software can, directly write to a database with what it understands of the system, you can store that state automatically. And yeah, you can get a lot of these benefits if you're in a cloud or not. Well, Justin, where can people find the Cloud Native Infrastructure book? And then how can people follow you and uh, and so on on the internet? Yeah, the book, uh, the main landing page for the book is cnibook.info. It's just a static page. We have a bunch of links for, uh, I think there's still a free version that you can go download. It depends on when this podcast goes up, but it's been sponsored a couple of times. So sometimes there's some free links there, uh, but otherwise there's Amazon and, and O'Reilly links to it. I'm on, on Twitter pretty often. I'm uh, Rothgar on Twitter, R-O-T-H-G-A-R. Yeah. <laughs> and my co-author is uh, Chris Nova, K-R-I-S-N-O-V-A. And then we also have a Twitter account for the book that's really just it's less noise from myself and Chris. And it's just, you know, if there's information about the book or where there'll be, a, we do book signings occasionally at events. And when free copies go out, uh, CNI book is the Twitter handle there. Awesome. Thanks again for taking all the time to be on the show. And it's been great. It's been one of those shows where it's like, okay, there's so much information and so many in some ways, new ideas. It's a lot to take in. So uh, again, thanks for the time. And uh, thanks to you for listening to today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That is me. I am at EC Banks on Twitter. Or you can uh, check out my about page at EthanCBanks.com. Chris is at Chris Wall on Twitter. And he thinks out loud at WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, park your rocket in orbit around PacketPushers.net. Down on the planet surface, you'll find a myriad of fellow data knots discussing orchestration, cloud native, automation, DevOps, architecture, hyperconvergence, distributed apps, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your software manage effectively, and your cables be cleanly managed. Sorry. Uh, Left hang with nothing to say, Justin. Uh, (laughs) Here's my (laughs) non-question.